0: Welcome to Sassy. I'm Annie Merlowski and I'm your host. Each week we share the inspiring stories of female leaders throughout the tech industry. Thanks for joining us as we dive into the inspiring stories of career growth and development from women who are leading technology as we know it. Today we are sitting down with Carmen, who is the Senior Director of Demand Generation at Alma. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Carmen. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role?
1: Yes, so I'm Carmen Cedeño. I am the Senior Director of Demand Generation at Alma, which is a company focused on providing affordable and accessible mental health care to people who are using their insurance benefits in the United States. As part of my role, I look after our performance marketing, field marketing campaigns, and marketing operations team. And I've been with the company now for three years and just in the B2B marketing space for a little over 10 years.
0: That's such, like, that's such an amazing need in our community right now. I'm a little curious, how does Alma work with the B2B space? Are you focused on kind of like the utilization of insurance benefits?
1: Yeah. So on the B2B side, what we're focused on is helping therapists or providers build and run their private practice. So they join Alma, they pay a monthly or yearly membership fee. And we help them build their caseload and attract clients. We help them get paneled so that they can take insurance and we help them with billing as well. So on the B2B side, I'm focused on recruiting those providers to Alma.
0: That's incredible. That's such it's such an important thing that we need to, you know, it's hard when you have insurance that covers mental health care and you can't find someone and you can't find someone who takes your insurance. And it's just overly complicated. So that's amazing that you guys are removing some of those barriers.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about some of the key milestones that have shaped your career and kind of brought you to the position you're in today.
1: Yeah, so I think of key milestones as experiences that shaped who I am as an employee or as a leader. I think about moments when I hired my first employee and built a team, when I went through a company merger and inherited a team, and when I had to let someone go for the first time, and also when I had to advocate for better equity or resources for myself or folks on on my team. In all of these, I think about how these situations shape my values and what my non-negotiables are in a role and sort of how that evolution has helped me pick roles or work for certain companies that align more closely with my values, right? So before Alma, I worked in cybersecurity and before cybersecurity, I worked at a company that had 50,000 employees and was in the travel space. And I think... In each of those roles, I went through a milestone that either reset sort of like what I consider to be what I would like to focus on in my career or what would bring me happiness or fulfillment in my role and has led me to make a change and, and move on to to now where I work at Alma. And I think the shift for me between my last company and working at Alma was that we were in the middle of the pandemic. I was working in cybersecurity, which is a great field, but I felt like I could be doing more to help people. And I also come from a community where mental health care is kind of taboo and, and stigmatized. And when I had seen the role at Alma, it really felt like I had a unique opportunity to do something a bit different that was a bit more meaningful, especially during a time where people were really looking for mental health care across the United States. So when I joined Alma, we were just a company of 40 people. Now we're a company of 500 people. So I was able to really see the impact of, of my work firsthand. And, and that's one of the milestones that led me to,
0: to change my role. That's incredible. And that's, that's such a, like a big jump in a company to be a part of, And the, you know, the variations of what you're experiencing in your day to day life, you know, as an employee to go from 40 employees to 50 employees. Tell us a little bit about like what that change, how that change was perceived by you kind of in that growth phase of a startup.
1: Yeah. So obviously this change didn't happen overnight. Right. So when I joined Alma in 2020 and we were just about 40 people it was really easy to get things done. I had like five different roles when I joined Alma. I was doing like sales operations, marketing operations, demand gen, you know, running ads, like running analytics and also forecasting for, with finance, how we were going to get to our goals each year. And as we started to scale... I basically was unhired from a lot of these roles, people that were much smarter than me and much more capable than I was, started to join the company and take over these responsibilities. And I had to sort of let go of like, these Legos, so to speak, where they were no longer mine to hold and other people would take it and shape it to be something better. And in those situations, I definitely had to be very open to change. And I think that that's what kind of ultimately makes you successful in a startup that is going through rapid growth, right? It's your ability to be open to change and be flexible as well and being comfortable giving away certain responsibilities and not being so close to all the areas of the business like you were once used to. And I think that that is sort of the trajectory I've seen to the point that a lot of things that I used to do when I first joined Alma, I don't even remember how to do anymore because they're no longer mine to do. So that's
0: been really interesting to see. That's, that's awesome. And that is hard. It's when you have, you know, so many things that you're doing and it's almost like, you know, like letting your children grow up, right? Like that's (laughs) another analogy of, of you have to let it kind of do, do what it's meant to do and that you can't necessarily own it forever. And so that's, That's tricky. It's definitely a tricky experience.
1: Yeah, that's so true. And I think that that's kind of where you start to see friction come up, especially when startups going through growth, like when they go through their Series B and C, when people don't want to let go of certain responsibilities or they think that what got them to Series A is going to be the same thing that's going to get them Series B and Series C. And it's like, no, what got you to be successful the first year is not going to look the same the second year. So, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, for most of us, you know, the the jobs that we're doing didn't exist when we were kids. So what is it that you wanted to be when you grew up? And do you think that there's a correlation to what you wanted to be and what you're doing now?
1: Oh, my gosh, this is such a great question. And it's and it's so funny, because you're absolutely right. I, I mean, demand generation wasn't a thing. When I was growing up, right, you were just you were just doing marketing, right? But when I was younger, I don't know, I wanted to be a detective. And then I wanted to be like a graphic designer. And then when I was in college, I actually thought I was going to work for the UN or something. I had gone in thinking I was going to major in international business. I failed calculus three times, couldn't get into the business school and had to pivot to communications, which ultimately landed me in a marketing career. But when I think about those areas that like what I wanted to be when I was younger, I think the common theme is just like, connecting to people and and you know like something around like visual identity and also there's like a a level of detail in all of those roles like if you're a detective you're a graphic designer that I think are kind of things that I tap into now in in my role so yeah I definitely do see maybe like a little
0: correlation well I'd say there's a lot of detective work in demand (laughs) sometimes it's you know hunting down the right accounts you know, trying to figure out, okay, where did this come from? <laughs> like, there's, there's a lot of that, that you don't realize you're doing it until you're like really under the hood digging around. <laughs> so true. So true. Is there a challenge that you feel like you've had to overcome in your career? Yeah, I think one of the biggest
1: challenges I had to overcome in my career was just, I, I think about two, two challenges. So one is kind of related to a challenge that tested me as a leader. And then one is just more of a personal challenge. And when I think about the challenge that tested me as a leader was kind of what I alluded to earlier, which was inheriting a, a team during a company merger. But I also had to let go of someone during that company merger as well that was already on my team. And these two things were happening at the same time. And it was the first time in my career that I was facing these two situations. And there's no playbook and on how to be a great leader, right? There's a lot of guides. There's a lot of like books, but ultimately what shapes people as a leader is going through that experience and really tapping into like their values and, and their strengths. And I would say that what was challenging about that is that I had to make sure that I communicated to my team in a way that made them feel secure that they had the resources needed to navigate these changes. And also I had to build trust as well, right? So in inheriting a team, I was inheriting someone that was up for my role. And ultimately that person had to report into me. So I had to build a lot of trust. And I think in that situation, I really had to, you know, focus on listening first versus jumping in with my point of view and being like, okay, this is like my goal. And this is how we're all going to get to this goal. I really had to build trust with this person, let them lead in a lot of areas. And then after building that trust, working together with them to be like, okay, these are areas that we need to improve or changes I want to see. So those were definitely challenging. And then I think from a personal perspective, I think about my age, age is not something that we discuss at work, but I look relatively young. And when people see me, I think they're, they're shocked. And also I'm short, but apparently I give tall energy. <laughs> so I think that, you know the the age the the age piece stands out to me because being perceived as young might mean that I might not be involved in certain conversations that are of higher level that maybe like a C suite might be involved in because I might not have enough experience, right? Luckily, those aren't challenges I'm going through now. But it was definitely something difficult that I had to navigate like earlier on in my career about how do I make sure that I'm considered a voice in those rooms when I'm dealing with people who have more experience than me or seemingly older, especially like with more in more traditional companies.
0: No, that's, that's entirely fair. And I think that that's you know, we talk a lot about, you know, bias as gender bias, but age mm-hmm. bias, especially in tech, I think is is very yes. present. I'd be curious, like a little bit of, you know, how do you handle that? How do you kind of overcome that level of bias?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. I think when I'm in these situations, would I let speak for itself is my work and the results that I drive. I focus more on that more than anything. And I'm confident in what I can deliver. So I make sure that I have the results to back up why I know something about a certain topic or why I'm the right person to be involved in a certain discussion. So I really let my work speak for itself in those in those situations.
0: That's awesome. And I think that that's, that's one of those things that you can't, you know, you can't argue with numbers, Mm -hmm. right? When you present, present like, this is what happened, there's no, there's no room for bias. It's completely Mm -hmm. objective at that point. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, that's a really smart way of handling any, you know, dissension or anyone who may not necessarily, you know, trust an opinion. It's, here's the facts. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about how you maintain a work-life balance. And do you think that as a woman, it's different than perhaps your male peers?
1: Yeah, this is so difficult, especially with remote work. Our work is at home. So there isn't a physical boundary in terms of how do you separate work and your personal life. For me, I believe in the power of rituals. So I you know, have certain rituals that I bake into every week that I look forward to. So I work out two times a week and I actually have to physically leave my house to work out. And there's a financial (laughs) stipulation attached to it. Like if I don't go work out, I am losing money. So that forces me to leave my house and create that boundary where I'm physically away from my workspace. So mentally, it's like out of sight, out of mind. I'm also intentional about date night with my boyfriend. We like to go out and it gives me something to look forward to. And I like reading as well. And I feel like that's a ritual that every day I look forward to. I'm like, I can't wait to finish work so I can close my laptop and get right back into my, my book. And then something else that I started earlier this year, and I was inspired by a coworker, is that every month I actually try to book a long weekend. So I'll ask for at least one day off each month so that I am taking time for myself versus kind of like waiting for a bigger moment to take like a full week or two weeks, like I will still do that. But each month, I also create space for myself to decompress and and not work for at least a day. So yeah, I definitely believe in the power of rituals and just giving yourself something to look forward to.
0: I love the idea of calling those actions rituals, because it puts so much more power behind the intention of Mm -hmm. it, than just saying, well, yeah, I blocked my calendar. I block my calendar so that I can go and take lunch, I block my calendar so I can go to the gym. But when you talk about it as a ritual, I think it's, it's almost more of a religious experience, you know, mm. that you know, really good for your soul in that sense. And I think that that's a great, that's a great way to think about the things that you do to maintain that balance as it being a ritual that you adhere to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because otherwise, to your point, it would kind of be like, well, I guess I can book over this time that I blocked off of my calendar because it doesn't matter. But it's like, no, this is something I do every week. It's a ritual. Like, it's non-negotiable. It's on there. Like, you cannot book over it type of thing. So definitely agree with you on that.
0: Well, and I think your point about taking a, a long weekend every month in in SAS, you know, and in tech, there's so many jobs that you have unlimited PTO. Mm-hmm. And I do think there is a tendency to wait until you have something special or you're taking a big trip to use that unlimited PTO. So what a good example for you as a team leader to be setting for the people that you manage that it is completely appropriate to just take a day because you feel like you need it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you bring up such a good point and and I have I have such such a hot opinion on unlimited PTO. I don't believe in unlimited PTO being helpful for people actually because to your point, there have been studies that show that people who work for companies that have unlimited PTO actually end up taking less time than if they were given, you know, a policy with that they have to take 20 days off mandatorily, right? And then if a person leaves that role, they're not paid for the days that they didn't use. So there's just so many implications about it. And I really do not like unlimited PTO for that reason. But to your point, yes, I always tell my team, you know, like your life comes first and this job is maybe second or third. Like do not put your well being up like do not put your well being second to your role here and make sure that you are taking time for yourself off. So absolutely I agree with you on that.
0: That's that's such a good mindset and it's, you know, You know, you work for a mental health organization. So it's always at the front of your mind, right? Of like taking care of yourself. But I do think it's we get the tendency that you kind of get into things and you get bogged down Mm -hmm. and, and you forget that, like, the company doesn't know that you are out of shape, like, but you know, you know, you're out of shape. And so you have to take that time for yourself. If you want to change that lifestyle.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that's such a good point that you raise, right? Because it's like, especially in this remote work environment, we're all, you know, reduced to this little box on a screen, right? But we don't see anybody's lived experience. We don't know what's going on beyond like the little corner or the little square that Zoom presents us, right? And you start to see signs of burnout, obviously, where like, maybe someone is, not paying attention in a meeting or you see them get a bit more like um, short or curt with you in responses or their work is starting to um, not be at the level of quality that you're used to, but it should never reach that point. It should never reach that point. Like at that point, it's too late. Like you are burnt out. Like The whole point of taking time off is that you should prevent ever getting to that state. So that's something that I always think about
0: as well. No, that's, that's really smart. And I think that those are great leading indicators to know when you need to be checking in on your team mm-hmm. and making sure that like, it's not just that they missed a deadline. Like it's never that people don't just mm-hmm. intentionally miss deadline. There's always something kind so of behind true. that. So true. So when you think about, you know, you shared that the reason why you chose to, you know, join Almo is because this was something that was really important to you. You know, when you're either looking at evaluating a company for a new career opportunity, or, you know, even looking with at a company for a partnership. What are some of the things that are important to you that you try to evaluate in that stage?
1: Yeah, this is such a great question. I think about three things. So one is that I like to see a diverse leadership group. If I am interviewing for a company that where the where the leadership group looks homogenous, that's a flag to me, especially as someone who identifies as a minority. And then I would say the second thing is that I like to see a good relationship between sales and marketing. It's a flag to me if I see that no one from the sales team is part of an interview panel or that marketing leadership is not talking about sales or the relationship with with the sales leader. And then I think the third thing I look for is just making sure that the company has equitable processes that help folks grow in their career, but also take care of their well-being. So, right, we spoke about unlimited PTO, but it goes beyond that. And I think in interviews, people can ask, well, how do you make sure that people are actually taking time off with your unlimited PTO policy? Do you do an audit? Is there like a minimum that you encourage people to take? So through a combination of asking questions throughout the interview process and just doing research, I kind of start to surface these themes. And also company culture is important to me. I want to make sure that I'm working at a company with people that I get along with and a team that is low ego. And that can come up if you notice certain answers throughout the interview process that sounds kind of competitive, like it's me versus them, as opposed to like an us thing in terms of driving goals forward. So I would say those are the things I like to focus on.
0: No, I love that idea of the marketing and sales alignment. That's something that is near and dear to my heart. And to your point of interviewing, when you're in interviewing process as a marketing leader, who especially in demand gen, right, where you're going to be working really closely with sales, if you don't get to meet sales, that is a huge red flag. Like that is something that's really important that and it should feel the same way on the other side, right? If you were interviewing <laughs> in sales, and you don't get to meet marketing, anyone from marketing, like, Depending on your role, like there's definitely an instance where maybe that doesn't make any sense. But I think 90% of the time, there's good point and good reason in having to know who's across the table from you.
1: Yeah, that's that's so spot on. And I'm equally as passionate about the relationship between sales and marketing and like looking back at past roles I've had where I interviewed and the salesperson wasn't involved, like that should have been a flag to me. And I remember when I was interviewing at Alma, I met our SVP of sales, like maybe on the second or third interview round. And one thing that she told me that I'll never forget, she was like, whoever comes into this role is going to be my best friend. (laughs) And I was like, okay, great. Like this is exactly the type of relationship I'm looking forward to, right? Where I work closely with the sales team. So yeah, a hundred percent agree as that being a flag for, for us in a demand general role.
0: So you mentioned you know company culture being really important to you and also that you're fully remote. How do you rectify that as a team leader and how do you help build that company culture because you know, that's a lot of why there's this conversation of like going back to the office and having hybrid environments and there is you know there's challenges to that, especially in a world where perhaps mm-hmm. people were not hired who were close to an office they were hired for their skills and now there's no office near them. How do you kind of balance that?
1: Yeah, that's that's such a that's such a good question. It's really difficult. And I think a lot of people are starting to navigate that now and learning as they go. I think one thing that's worked really well for my team is that we actually have a calendar and on the calendar we have a weekly hold where people can submit topics that they want to talk about or ideas for trainings or team bonding that they want to do. And we stick to that. So that has helped us find ways to bond with each other in a way that's like low impact and well, high impact, I should say, and low effort. And each quarter, we also have a virtual offsite where we come together and plan for the next quarter, but we also carve out time to get to know each other better and do activities. And then the last thing we've done is that someone on my team actually hosts water coolers every week. So obviously we can't be in an office and stand by a water cooler and chit chat, but it's a calendar block where anybody can come in and just chit chat every Monday and it's called a water cooler. So we try to find ways to just recreate moments to bond that we would have had if we were all in person. And I think also seeing people in person helps as well. So we have a in-person offsite with the marketing department every year that's always the time to see everybody and bond. So yeah, those are ways that we try to create that.
0: No, that makes sense. And that's, I mean, that those getting those in person events, you know, even if it is just once a year, once every, you know, 18 months, I think can be so important to building that not just in a box on a screen relationship, you know, you say things over, over dinner that you wouldn't necessarily say in a, in a Zoom meeting. And and to have that level of connectivity and that trust, you have to build it. And it's, it's, you can save money on an office space, but you still have to have an investment in your employees and your culture, right?
1: That's so true. And I think one of the things that I noticed as well, when we were sort of coming out of the the full lockdown is that a lot of people also kind of were struggling to socialize in person, like they felt it was very high stakes. And they were like, Oh, my gosh, we're all going to be together in person. Like, how do I even talk to you? What do I do? Because it's very different to talk so, to someone via Zoom than it is in person. To your point, you might say something over dinner that you might not say via Zoom, right? So a lot of people were struggling with that. And, and the way that we kind of tried to get around that is by sort of having no expectations, right? Like you come as you are, there will be like no agenda, like you just get to bond and And talk to whoever you want. And also, just naming it, right? Like, we all feel a little awkward coming out of (laughs) a full lockdown, and, you know, our social skills are not gonna be the same. Like, let's give each other grace and be patient with each other and, you know, like, go with the flow and not force conversation if we don't feel comfortable and stuff like that.
0: Awesome. Those are, I think, some really great tips on how do you facilitate a really open environment for people to build those relationships without overly facilitating something.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Have you had a mentor that shaped your career path at all?
1: Oh, so (laughs) I have a hot take about the word mentor. I feel that in my career, I've benefited more from sponsors and mentors. And I say that because when I think about the word mentor, I think about someone who is like a sounding board, right? And is going to coach me on how to navigate a situation or is going to offer me an opinion or perspective that maybe I didn't think about specific to a situation. But a sponsor is going to be someone who's going to carve out a room for me, or like space at a table that I'm not on just yet, or is going to speak my name in rooms that I'm not in, right. And I feel like throughout my career, that's what I've benefited from a sponsor, someone who believed in me, who pushed me and created opportunities for me, and also advocated for me when I wasn't in the room. So I would say throughout my career, I've had more sponsors than anything that have shaped my career, not not mentors.
0: That's such a profound way of thinking about the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. Like I have, I've actually personally never heard that. And I love that idea of that they make space for you at a table and they invite mm-hmm. you to be a part of that conversation. And that is really so much more powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say that when I think about my career trajectory and when I've been offered opportunities to either grow as a leader or take on a project that was really challenging for me, it was always because of that, because someone sponsored me to do that and believed in me and advocated for me. So that's what I always come back to. Like Those are the examples that come to mind for me.
0: That's incredible. And it's. I think that that's when you flip it the other way of, that's a great way for me as a leader to think about who can I sponsor? How can I get them into the right conversations? And Mm -hmm. and that is, you know, opening doors for either people that you manage or people that you believe deserve that opportunity. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to a woman who's considering a career in SaaS?
1: Yeah, this is um, a great question. My advice might seem very simple, but I always like to say, just apply for the role. Don't second guess yourself. The worst thing that can happen is that you're told no or you don't get the role. And the reason I say that is because I think there have been studies that show that women often don't apply to roles or they feel they don't meet all the bullet points on a job description. Whereas men, if they meet like two of the bullet points, will apply to roles and and oftentimes you'll realize that you didn't need to cross all the all the boxes or or check all the boxes to to get a role. And the reason I say that is because when I think about when I started working in SaaS, I had really made a pivot from working at a traditional corporation with 50,000 employees to working at a startup. And I had no startup experience. And I applied to the role because I was really excited about the space. And the hiring manager took a chance on me, but my work also spoke for itself and my skills as well. And even though there was a steep learning curve, I ultimately was able to bring a fresh perspective that was really helpful in driving goals forward. And I've been in the space ever since. Right. So that's what I would say, like, just apply for the role. Don't second guess yourself. Don't second guess your skill sets. And ultimately, what you can bring is a fresh perspective to that role or that organization.
0: Well, and that breathing fresh life into, you know, into ideas. And like, if you've never, if you have a playbook that you've always done, that's a very different way of looking at a new role than coming in and saying, okay, like, I've never done that, but I know how, or I can figure Mm -hmm. out how and, I can, I'll talk to people, I will learn that. And that I think, especially in a space like tech, that's evolving constantly, and the roles are changing, and the needs of the market is changing. You have to have that learning mindset, you have to be thinking about how am I always going to be improving and staying ahead of what changes are coming down the pipeline. Yeah,
1: that's so true. And that's such good advice, too.
0: So kinda before we before we close things off, one fun question is and you said you you love to read, so what is your (laughs) must read or watch right now? And it doesn't have to be, you know, professional, it can be personal. You know, what you're really loving today.
1: I'll I'll say what's a must watch right now because what I read I I read romance novels like I read for escapism I don't read for like intellectual growth or personal development so I'll stick to something that people should watch right now I love Outlander I've been watching it every week I highly recommend that if no one has started that series it's such a great series and they have new episodes every week so Outlander it is for me that's my recommendation
0: (laughs) I've watched Outlander as well and I love the historical fiction aspect of it, that it's like the switching back and there's like there is some truth to the history in there, right? And it's dark. Like some of that is really dark. And yeah. it's they do a really good job of the way they tell that story.
1: Yeah, it's really expert storytelling and to your point how they navigate like very dark moments in history. I mean, they do it with with such grace and it's very educational and I, I really appreciate that about the show. So yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Carmen. It was so great to get to know you a little bit better. Thank
1: you, Anne. It was so great being in space with you.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Sassy. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or join us on LinkedIn at Sassy Podcast to stay in the know about future episodes and guests.